Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Practical CMO. And today we're going to talk about an issue that's come up several times. It's really about what I would sort of broadly label a failure to communicate. And even in small companies, it can be challenged by poor internal communications. You know, in a large corporation, you know, a global number three, well, you can almost expect that there would be poor communications across the very large employee base. But in small and mid-sized businesses, it almost seems like it shouldn't happen. And yet it does happen too often in these businesses. Now, you might ask how and why that can happen when you have an employee base of less than 200 and everybody works in the same facility. I asked that question after observing poor communications and the corresponding negative effects of having a workforce which is not aligned, how it hurt business performance over and over again. Today's approach to the topic of failure to communicate will explore a really different and innovative way to improving communications, focused on building an internal network. Now we all talk about external networks, but this whole idea of an internal network, I think is quite innovative and I think you're gonna benefit from today's program. So let's get the conversation started. Today, my guest is Graham Dobbin an experienced internal international executive with a great background in corporate development. And Graham focuses on creating cultures of high collaboration and strong communications. He spent over five years with Dale Carnegie training and he's founded his own business as well several years ago. I'm gonna let Graham tell you a little bit more about his business directly. Graham, welcome to the program. Hi Mark, good to see you. Our business is Ascentive New York and effectively, We've got an overarching thing that we believe in thinking differently, challenging the status quo in any business, including your own. And the way we do that is we help our clients predict the future. We keep them on the front foot, we keep them one step ahead, and we look to try and take out the uncertainty. And there's been a lot of uncertainty over the last few months and take that uncertainty out of decision-making. How we do it, we do it by facilitating really great and discussions, skills development, insights, and what we really focus on is two different things. As you've said, building internal networks and external. Now, when we go external, people tend to talk about going networking rather than building a network. And mm -hmm. we're looking at about how you build relationships that really give you a return on investment for any time you put in. When you look at it internally, it's about how do we make sure that the trust is built instinctively with employees there, there's a culture of collaboration and where people can share, they can feel safe to share and they can feel that their voice is meant to be heard. So they speak up. Give you a bit of an idea, kind of our approach. I moved to New York. You can probably tell I'm not from New York. Oh, I thought you had a New York accent, it's, you know, it, I mean, it, it, in a, coming from the Midwest, it all sounds like a New York accent. Well, at least Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> originally, originally from Scotland, we moved to New York two and a half years ago. We had no clients and set up a brand new business. And we knew that there was a way of just building networks. And to give you an idea, I, just before we had the lockdown in March, in February, I was in, in seven different cities in three countries working. That's from a standing start two and a half years ago. I've been working with Google, BMW, Roche, WeWork. There's been a whole host of the large clients that we've been working with. And that's all come through building relationships and building our business networks in New York, in Manhattan mainly. Mm -hmm. And to supplement that, tons of smaller businesses. 
lots and lots of smaller businesses where we're working with really high growth in different areas on getting them ready to really elevate and build their workforce from the ground up in the right way. So we're lucky. We're lucky we see both sides, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that you've worked in SMBs or small and mid-sized businesses mm. on up to enterprise corporations. You know, we like to say in Chief Outsiders, what we do works for almost any company in any industry and almost any size company, right? And I have the strong impression that your approach is a fit that way too. I know you've got a very proven approach just from how you've built your business and the magnitude of the clients that you've brought in, Graham. What do you think the benefits, if someone said, well, you know, what are the one or two or three benefits that I would get from working with uh, Ascendant, what would you lay out for them? I suppose the first part would really be where to focus time on the relationships. We all know so many people nowadays. I don't know how many you've got on LinkedIn, Mark. I think the last time I looked, it was something like two and a half thousand people. I can't focus on all those people. So we need to work out who we can really collaborate with and to what end. And business, we've got to have some kind of return on investment. I mean, that doesn't always have to be money. There can be a whole lot of other things, but we need to know what the end purpose is. When we're building that internally, that can be really powerful. When people get to know each other and they, you know, they feel the company, there's an emotion there with it. And it's said often, who are the most desirable companies to work for? Why do you want to work for them? It's nine times out of 10, the workforce is telling you, we like working here, come and join us. Yeah, they're the advocates, right? Absolutely. You know, yeah. Well, you know, the practical CMO, I always like to make sure that we get a couple of good case studies out there, right? So that we can let our audience have some practical guidance. I'd like to kind of lay out one of the poorest performing communications <laughs> businesses I've ever experienced, right? I'm going to lay it out for you. And then I'm going to let you tell me what you would have done differently. Because honestly, I was not able, it wasn't my position to try to fix it. I mean, I kept calling them out on what I saw as poor communications and how it was impacting their business. But I was not in the position to proactively fix it. But this is a relatively small company probably under 15 million in sales, fewer than 100 employees. They were all in one building on two floors, right? So they weren't sort of spread out across multiple cities or even working from home. But here's what I saw on multiple visits there over a couple of years. You know, I was working primarily with the marketing and product organizations on prioritizing some new products and helping them with positioning and branding and Every now and then, but much too frequently, somebody in the product group would say, well, we don't really know what the technical, the software developers are working on. And, you know, I think the first time or two, I let it go. And then it just kept coming back, right? Well, we're not really sure kind of what the software developers' priorities are. And so finally, I think, it must have been like the third or fourth visit, right? I kept hearing this. I said, isn't that their office? Like, 20 feet down that hallway. And they're like, yeah, that's where they all are. I said, well, you can't go down there and just ask them or just kind of observe what they're working on. And I just got in the Midwest, we call it deer in the headlight dares, right? Like, <laughs> what, are you kidding me? And I just could not understand that. And of course, you know, the impact to the business, Graham, was the things that the product development, the product managers were looking for were not the things that the technology guys were building. And so it just didn't happen once. I mean, this was ongoing, right? So 
you can imagine how that could have totally messed up the sort of product launches and their ability to remain competitive, right? I mean, there could be a lot of negative implications of poor communications like that, but I know this is sort of fresh on you, but I mean, other than calling this to the attention of the CEO, I really wasn't able to do much about it, frankly. So what do you think the root cause could have been in a situation like this? I know we're just speculating, but I think it's a good case. There's a number of things. When people are working in silos, we hear that all the time. There could be a number of different reasons for it. It could be micromanagement. There's obviously no communication. There could also be a little bit of fear in there, fear of voicing up fear of telling people what you're doing and maybe putting an idea forward. Because some of the best companies in the world are probably the most psychologically safe. One of the things you mentioned earlier with smaller companies, communication can be bad. You can understand it with larger companies. But here's, here's another question that kind of I ponder all the time. Is, is like when you look at Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple and all these kind of places, they have, and they're, they're known to have, psychologically safe environments for people to work in. They're, they're appealing for people to work in. So mm-hmm. are they appealing because they're big and they can afford to do that? Or are they big because they did this from the beginning and you know the, the, right. the workforce took them through? I think is actually, if you look at the history of these companies, they brought the workforce through so they made it open enough. So when people are saying, I, I don't want to go down to that office, the barriers need to be broken down. They can be, there's lots of ways that can be done. But the first focus is on why will somebody not do that? Mm-hmm. You know, and here's the thing for any business owner, any business leader, don't think that this is necessarily something that needs to get addressed. I would almost say, what's the impact if you don't? Because every one of the companies I've just named have had employees who've come up with phenomenal ideas at some point that's made the company millions. Right. And yeah. that's only because they feel safe. The most famous one, is Amazon Prime. I think Jeff, um, Jeff Bezos said something along the lines of, you know, a, a junior IT software person came up with this stupid idea mm-hmm. of giving people you know, a, a subscription and free delivery. And they've got over 100 million subscribers now. That would be a success. It's probably one of the best inventions ever mm-hmm. is Amazon Prime when you look at yeah. it from a business perspective. Yeah. That is likely not to have happened because it was, it was a risky, it was a risky, risky um, way to do it. Yeah. yeah. But somebody felt empowered enough to actually be able to say it. So with your company, it's about empowering people, opening up the lines of communication. Why are they scared? Why won't they go down that corridor? Right. So there could have been some corporate history or some corporate executive somewhere along the way that perhaps called people out if you thought they were out of line or really did not really encourage new ideas coming forward or something like that, right? I mean, I mean, that just, that kind of a culture doesn't just happen, does it? I mean, it, it's, somebody has to do something along the way to cause it. I think naturally people want to interact with each other. I was, so I think that's kind of the more natural model, but a dysfunctional communications culture, it's almost like somebody had to sort of, there had to be some intervention along the way that caused that to happen. You've always got a conflict when you think about it. We're social animals. We want to collaborate and, and in the main, and we like to be liked. So we're going to do things that will help to please other people, and we want to make a contribution to the greater good. That's how we tend to be. But mm-hmm. then on the other side, we've got Maslow's hierarchy. We want to stay safe. Right. 
Right. <laughs> if, there's, if there's anything that is going to threaten, threaten us on this side, is we're going to look after number one. Right. And we're going to keep safe. So we're not thinking we're damaging anybody. So my guess is that anyone that you said you spoke to didn't think they were doing anything particularly wrong by not going and speaking to someone else, other than they were protecting themselves. That was it. That was it. Yeah. So my guess is there's been, as you say, there's been micromanagement down there at some point. Somebody's lost face publicly, which is a huge no-no. We spoke about Dale Carnegie. The very first principle in Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People is don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Mm-hmm. Now, as a leader, we need to have those conversations. How do we have them without criticizing? How do we have them without complaining? Condemning always it's old language, always seems really severe. <laughs> but yeah. how do we have that without doing that? Because if we start to complain, and guess what? If we criticize someone, they're going to lock down. We drop back into self-protection. How do we keep it open? So that's our responsibility to lead the way on that. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks. I appreciate your kind of diving into that. It just continually surprised me that after multiple visits, even over a couple of year period, that that culture had not opened up and changed and that sort of misalignment, you felt like they really could have moved faster in terms of getting new products to market and more competitive products. They perhaps were their own worst enemy in that respect. Let me ask you a question about an organization that you've worked with who's really nailed this well. I mean, you've talked about Apple and some of these others and you know, for some of those of us who've kind of worked in the tech sector along the way, some of these companies are perhaps more obvious, but with or without a name, give me a quick case study of a company that you think has really, really got this nailed, Graham. I'm going to give you a really unusual one. It was an engineering business, huge engineering business that I worked with in the UK, and it was actually a nuclear processing plant. And um, one of the challenges there on collaboration was the plant was decommissioning. Now, we're talking mm-hmm. about it being in a rural part of England where um, there weren't many other options. So effectively, the people that I was working with were leading teams to work themselves out of their own jobs with no other prospects around. Mm-hmm. So we got to the point where called in to, actually, to have a look at this and the, the first session went well. And... Eventually, of course, this was challenged. Someone turned around and said, well, there's a lot of negativity in the place. And nobody's speaking and everybody's protecting themselves. Right. And I think I had the very, very open and honest conversation. I said, guys, we've got, we've got kind of three or four years to go here. We can all walk around in our own bubble protecting ourselves and complaining. Mm-hmm. Or we can make the best of what we've got and give ourselves more skills so it's easily transferable when we get out of here. It's your choice. Right. So we can basically have a miserable time or we're all in this together. Which do you want? And it was unanimous. Let's be in this together. Let's open this up. So this program was um, rolled out to well over 100 of the senior managers. And the difference there was you were taking something that was, you you were dealing with the inevitable. And how do you deal with it really well? And if a a business that's decommissioning and about to fire everyone, everyone's about to lose their job and you know it, so there was all this fear about pensions and everything. I mean, the, the whole thing, it was as bad as it gets. If they can take control of that and that process and still look after the people, mm-hmm. anybody can. Yeah. Any business can. Yeah. I faced one of those situations myself professionally. It was part of a Fortune 200 corporation. They brought in 
one of the large consultancies who basically said, hey, you should sell this part of this business. It's not strategic. You know, it's not where you want to build your core. And, and uh, so, you know, a number of us were declared non-strategic, which was just language for you're going to be around until we can find a buyer, right? And yet that group of people, we had a lot of fun. We accomplished a lot of things. And the gentleman who kind of ran that business did a really nice job of keeping everybody focused and kind of doing the right thing until, you know, it was your time to leave, right? We even shot a sort of informal video at one of our offsites where one by one, we all fell off our chairs as we got sold, right? <laughs> but after I left that business, I went back and talked to the guy who ran it. And I said, Larry, you did such a nice job of keeping everybody engaged. I said, what was your secret? He said, you know what, Mark? He goes, I was just like you. My job was at risk too. And so it's kind of like, we're all in this together. We can be transparent. We can be open about it. We're all adults. We can talk about it, right? That doesn't necessarily be fear producing. You know, there could be some really good things that come out of it. So I liked your example. It made me think about this. Um, one of those where I personally experienced that kind of uh, positive environment, Graham. Can I give you just another very, very quick example? There's a company that I've been working with in New York, a company called Poppin office furniture disrupting a really um, traditional market and um, great people to work with. They work with them uh, right across the country. Guess what? They sell things for offices and offices have been closed for the last few months. So things happen. Mm -hmm. And I spotted in some of the people I've been working with, I spotted on LinkedIn and they put LinkedIn posts. And the LinkedIn post was saying how fantastic it was to work at Poppin, how the culture was great, how the people were great, how the leadership was phenomenal, how they'd been well looked after, and they were sorry to leave. Mm. And these were people who lost their jobs, who still yeah. went out and publicly said how great the company was. And yeah. they were yeah. that's culture. Well, I worked for a very large bank. I don't know if, I think we might've been number five at the time. And the bank merged with another equal sized bank, right? So there was two of everything and a situation where you really only needed one of most of them, right? And so a lot of us left with that merger, but the bank about a year or two later started a reentry program for mm -hmm. employees, right? And I couldn't believe it. I went to kind of an alumni lunch with the CEO and they were announcing this reentry program. There were 800 people there. And these are all people who had left under, you know, there wasn't circumstances of their choice, but they were interested to know if there was still an opportunity that they could come back and work in that, in that financial services institution, right? I thought that was a really innovative approach, but also a real sort of a recognition of a very positive culture that even though the circumstances for leaving weren't necessarily positive at the time, people still had really strong uh, faith and belief in the, the executives and the future of that organization. I think some organizations culturally look at things differently and, and they're the ones that people want to work for. Well, this has been really good. I mean, we've talked about kind of a disaster story and a couple of success stories. Let's talk about recommendations and best practices. What where can we practically implement, right? And, uh, and just focusing on the practical nature of the conversation. And I've talked about businesses which have and have not mastered building a culture of internal collaboration and communication. For our last segment here today, let's talk explicitly about what can even a small and mid-sized organization do about building that process with that's demonstrated by high alignment, strong performance, and specifically, what would you recommend, right? I always like to give our audience something to take away. So what a healthy process look like for you? 
there are a lot of good practices. There's probably not one process that fits all. So the first thing that needs to be started, if there's an issue that's coming up or, or anywhere, there's a lot of companies with teams that are separate now. They're all virtual and remote. First thing is, is to assess where they are. Get, good assess, get some data with mm-hmm. them. Let's not guess. Whether you use the, you know, the standard, there's lots of assessments out there, whether it, whether it be DISC or Motivators or Team Dynamics or Myers-Briggs or whatever you want to use. Get yeah. something or give you some data to start. Then they take the guesswork out. You've got to lead by example. We don't tell people what to do. We show people what to do. There's a huge difference. And people will, if you tell people what to do and don't do it yourself, they're going to ignore it. So if yeah. we want to be open, so our communication needs to be consistent. It needs to be clear. It needs to be often. Yeah, okay. As leaders, I would say one of the biggest turnarounds I've seen um, with a business and with a team was the leader just going out and speaking to people. <laughs> I know that sounds really strange, but they were just, how's your day? What's happening? When you open, that's the, the quickest way to open up the, the lines of communication. We need to think about what's in it for them as well. Yeah. So lots of companies talk about profit. This is what we'll do and it's going to be great for us. What's in it really for the employee apart from keeping their job? Yeah. And we know that that's the basis of, of why anybody stays in a job. And, you know, what's the thing that's going to move them forward? Yeah. You're sort of the lead by example, I think. Don't, don't you feel that people are sort of really attuned to sort of the kind of hypocrisy that they see and hear when a leader says one thing and does another? I'm just thinking about a study from a year or two ago about value propositions, right? And I don't know, they interviewed some number of CEOs about their corporate value proposition, and only 7% knew what their own corporate value proposition was, wow. right? But they also said, oh, but they thought that 80, 87% thought their employees should know it. So only 7% of the CEOs knew it, but they almost all thought that their employees should know it, right? And I thought that is just like, that's just such a poor example, right? Setting a, such a terrible example for an organization. And, and then you're sort of the sort of getting out and meeting employees. There's a CEO I worked for, he ran a Fortune 200 company. He didn't graduate from college. When he passed away in his obituary, we all learned that he never actually graduated from high school either. But he was such a strong CEO. And the one thing he did is he'd have breakfast with five or six employees you know, every week, six o'clock in the morning. Informally, they'd open up the cafeteria just for him in a small group. And he just talked. How's your job going? What are you working on? Here are a few things the company's focusing on. And, and then, of course, you couldn't talk to everybody in the business that way, that intimately. But I just thought that was a pretty effective way of, for him getting in the temperature of what's going on in the business, but also kind of sharing insights and strategy that would help everybody kind of get excited about the corporate future. It's interesting you say that because one of the things that I really push forward is we actually know this intellectually. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows not to criticize someone. Everybody knows that having collaboration between teams works. It's just that it's been proven. So we know intellectually, if it was that easy, we'd just buy the book and read it and do it. That's right. kind of not. Yeah. You know, there, yeah. There's not many people that can do that. Uh, luckily, yeah. or I would probably wouldn't have a job. So it's about exploring how to do it. So we know intellectually, but it's actually about bringing that to life and making it real. 
So everything that we do needs to be brought in context. There's nothing that we do is, is cookie cutter. You can't just take, here's a training program and take it off the shelf and roll it out. Mm-hmm. It really needs to be, and it's not just when I say in context, it, it doesn't need to be just bespoke for the company or the market, but for everybody in there. Right. Two, people, two people sitting side by side that work together for 10 years doing the same job each still have different experiences. They will react differently to different things. And it can be done, it's been proven to be done, but having that intuition that something else might be going on and not just say, do one, two, and three, and four will happen. It's just mm-hmm. not true. It's just not yeah. true. Yeah. So having that openness and that curiosity, probably every single successful company has had that culture of right. curiosity. Yeah that's allowed people to explore and challenge and, and innovate. I also wonder about things that fall in the category of they're easy to do, but they're also easy not to do, right? You know, I heard this from a motivational speaker years ago, and so I'm not a very good candidate for takeaways from motivational speakers because I'm usually like 30 minutes later, it's kind of like, what did that guy say? But this one, there was a couple of things from this guy, I'm being honest, right, that stuck with me. And he had a one comment about things that are easy to do are also easy not to do. And his example was it's easy to get up 15 minutes in the morning and just sit quietly and maybe do a little stretching or whatever. But it's also easy to stay in bed for 15 more minutes, right? Yep. And so what do you think would be that incentive for executives to do the things that they yeah, you said it's about how, right? That they, they know they should do this. Do they just, are they just lacking kind of a defined roadmap or a, a guide for this to sort of improve this internal network? What gets everybody bought in is the why. What's in it for everybody? What's the greater good and what's in it for them personally? If you invent a great product, it doesn't make you a great leader. There are so many people who become almost accidental entrepreneurs, accidental business owners who get to that point, and this is something that's not really taught. We teach all the theory, but we don't teach the interpersonal relationships that that really, really matter. Mm -hmm. Some people have it almost naturally. It's a second, you know, it's an instinct of what we should do. So I think we underserve it. I think this should be taught in schools, if I'm being honest. Uh, When we look at relationships at the most basic level and how to build that network of trusted people around you, because it's about trust. Yeah. And I think we all learned a lesson along the way as executives that, I mean, I heard somebody say the other day, there are 8 billion people in the world and there, that means that there are 8 billion love languages, right? It's in a different context, but the point was trying to make the point that we're all unique. We have different gifts, different talents, different needs, different ways of expressing ourselves. And of course, the way you said it, he was trying to magnify that point, right? About the uniqueness of every individual, but is that part of it too? Is that one of the success factors, Graham, is getting to know every person that you work with on a more individual level? I mean, as best that you can, right? When you're authentic, you allow others to be authentic. It's as straightforward as that. So knowing people personally, not just in work and not just what they're good at, the function that they're good at doing, why they do it is absolutely crucial. To build trust, it's about looking at other people. So, you know, trust is made up of credibility, reliability, and intimacy. How much do we know that other person? Do we, and, you know, can we back up? Can we do what we say we're going to do? Do we actually do it? And mm-hmm. how well do we know that other person? 
but that's all taken apart if we're only looking after ourselves. People smell that out. You're only doing it for a, one purpose, and that, that's to get someone to do something for you. Nobody's going to buy in. That's really, we'll find that out really, really quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's about taking a genuine interest in the other person. Find out what's their drivers. When we know that, that's where, again, ideas, collaboration, innovation, all comes from people feeling relaxed where they are and mm -hmm. inviting others in. There is no better way for a business to gauge when they know that they're getting their employees recommending that someone else comes in and works in that, in that place. When they're being sought out for jobs, right. not just to earn money, but to actually work. And that comes from people taking care of each other. You know, and I mean, what you've just described might seem idealistic, but it's totally achievable. Yeah. For those of us who've kind of ever had that, sort of been blessed to work in those kinds of environments that operate like that, you realize how much more fun it is, how much more successful you are, how close you get to people, right? I mean, you make lifelong friendships that are outside of the professional relationship, right? I mean, it's just, it's almost like a cycle that builds on itself, right? You know, that the relationships build, they create more high performers, they create better team success, and then obviously the business success tends to follow. I think that's uh You retain talent, you attract talent. We know how much it costs any business to try and hire someone new or re replace a talent that's gone, train them up, all the fees. To be able to do that just kicks everything else out of place. And here, here's one of the big ones regardless of almost how bad the culture or the collaboration or lack of it is, it's so easily done. It's, it's done really, really quickly. It's not easily done because there needs to be some work to it, but it can change. It can turn around really quickly. Right. And all people need to do is experience it. Yeah. And what we do is get them to experience it. We don't tell them what to do. They need to experience it. And when, when they've experienced it, there's no going back. So they just create yeah. habits. Yeah. Yeah, you've raised the bar, right? That's kind yeah, of raised absolutely. the expectation for how people can really work together successfully. And, um, and you're keeping each other accountable. Here's the thing. You keep each other going with it. You keep each other accountable. If you can do it in the right way, go, no, that's not what we do now. We've got this level. I'll go back to it. When the biggest companies in the world are regarded as psychologically safe, we've got to ask ourselves, why would they do it once they became the biggest? They must have brought it with them. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes them very successful. Right. So even the small and mid-sized businesses, I mean, you too can have this, right? And in fact, you too should have this if you really want to drive sort of the best results in terms of employee commitment and loyalty and support, right? I mean, it'd be a great place to work. Great place to work. You're going to have a really, as a business owner, you're going to have a high return on investment. You're going to have um, people who are coming up with ideas on a regular basis. None of us can be arrogant enough to think that we've got all the answers. We want that team around us bringing in those ideas. So you've got people who are living with it. We spend lots of money on different things in a business, with environments and furniture and all these things to make it look good. Spend a little bit in emotion. That's maybe just as much of an investment as anything. Yeah, great. Well, you know, you've given our audience such great points today. I mean, this is very a very positive, encouraging conversation. And I think, you know, today that's an even more special conversation, right? But the practical wisdom that you've shared and the fact you basically laid it out in a way that any executive can kind of take that step to 
learning how to do it, do it better, you know, create this sort of self-fulfilling cycle of success is really a positive. So I suspect there are going to be some listeners that would like to follow up with you for additional information and maybe to contact you directly. How would they best do that? Um, do you know what? I've got one of those names that's really easy to find on LinkedIn. <laughs> so that's probably <laughs> Other than re- remember email addresses and phone numbers, look up Graham Dobbin on LinkedIn and you'll find me there. And that's Dobbin with two B's, right? D-O-B-B-I-N, right? It is. Yeah, at Scent of New York. Hey, Graham, thanks again. Thanks so much. And look forward to keeping up the conversation offline. Cheers. Thanks again, Mark. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.